with Why God Has Given Us His Word. Here's Pastor Ed Ray. God's given you His Word. He wants us to own His Word, to become part of us. When we memorize it, when we study it, when it becomes part of our lives, then it comes out at the right times, at opportune times for people who are struggling. That's your great privilege to speak God's Word to other people. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed, and the crippled stand singing Hope, it's been said, will whisper to us, don't give up, try one more time. And God speaks these words of hope through his people as they share his word. Now, of course, we can't give what we don't have, so the study of God's word is paramount. And we'll do that today on Growing Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We continue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with a timely word on where hope is found. Equally important, where it's not found. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. Paul writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved." For this reason, God has sent them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. Because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, the good news, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, brethren, stand fast. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. I love this phrase that Paul captured for us. Good hope by grace. Hope. This anticipation of good things. I love the old story. You've probably heard it. Maybe you'll remember of the couple that had twin boys. They were identical twins in looks, but completely opposites in everything else. The one son that they had was an absolute no-hope pessimist. Everything was wrong in life. And the other son was this very hopeful optimist, completely different. And so after several years, they're young boys, the dad decides to test them. And so their birthdays on the same day, of course, so he puts in one room all the toys he could afford, everything from video games to the best kind of electric toys, close the door and put the first kid's name on it, the pessimist. 
And then in the second room, it had a sliding glass door, and he hauled in a whole load of horse manure, put the second kid's name on the door. And he told them about it. They all ran into the rooms. He waited a few minutes, then he walked in. And the pessimist is on the floor crying in the middle of all these toys. And the dad said, what's wrong? The kid said, well, all my friends are going to be jealous. I got to read all these directions. I got to put all them together. Look at all the batteries it's going to take. And then they're going to break anyway. And we, yeah, just as I figured. Went to the other room, opened the door, and the optimist is dancing around this great big pile of manure. He said, why are you so happy? He said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> That's hope, great hope, optimism. As a kid growing up, I loved to read an old Western story. You grew up in California, you think you're in the West, so I love to read all the cowboy and Indian stories. Well, there was a true story about an Indian in Oklahoma who was trying to make it on a section of land 640 acres, and it was scrub. He's out in West Texas, and, and he's trying to raise sheep. They're barely getting by some crops and cows, and he's just barely making it. But then a wild cat crew came in, drilled a well, sitting on a huge pool of oil. And so he's rich. And they start sending the money, and he just has it sent to his bank. But he lives exactly the same. True story. And he's in the same house, and he's scraping by on this dry land farming. And every once in a while, they get really discouraged, and he'd come into the bank, and the bank president seems, and he said, how's it going? He said, crops dying, sheep sick, cows rustled all bad. Well, the banker knew exactly what to do. He'd take him into the vault, sit him at a table, and just stack all his money in front of his great big pile of money and leave him there and come out. And a few minutes later, the Indian come out and said, how's it going? And he said, well, crops are good, sheep are good, cows are good, everything's good. And he'd leave. Why? Because he took stock of his resources, of what he had. That's what Paul is doing here in this letter to the Thessalonians. He's reminding them of what they have in God. Now, you'll remember that this is one of the first churches in northern Greece in Paul's second missionary journey. He came to the city of Thessalonica. And he was only there for three Sabbaths. But he preached and people responded, and this church was founded. Then he went on down to Athens, then over to Corinth, and Timothy came back and said they needed encouragement, so he wrote the first letter that we've already gone through. Most of you went through it with us. But right after that letter came, someone came with a false, a forgery, a letter from Paul that said that they had missed the rapture, that they had missed the second coming of Jesus Christ, and they were in the middle of the tribulation because persecution had started in the Roman Empire. It get really bad just a few years from this is about 52 by about 60. Nero's in power and it's really bad. But it's already starting in Thessalonica and they were told they're in the middle of the seven years of tribulation at the end times. And so they're scourged and they send word to Paul and Paul writes this letter in response. And he talks about what the second coming would really be, the rapture and then this antichrist for seven years. And we're kind of breaking into that story right now. So this section, the first part of it is about that. They didn't have any hope. They had no anticipation of good things coming. 
I think it's very interesting to me the timing of us going through this letter and getting to this section that our nation is being tested. There's strain, a great deal of struggle. No matter who would have won, there would have been a great deal of struggle. And as I said last week, after all is said and done, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. God is in control. And I'll be the optimist here and say that I believe that God is going to bring revival one more time. I know many of you are praying for it. I'm praying for it and how our nation needs it. But revival does not usually come when everything is great. It's usually just the opposite. It's when there's a great deal of tension, sometimes even anarchy. But it has happened three times. Some historians would say four times in the history of our nation. And I believe God's going to do it one more time before he comes. So there's one great harvest ahead of it. I'm not saying it'll be great. That's what this lesson is really about. Even in the midst of struggles, we have these resources. We need to be reminded that God is able. We're not, but he's able. And so Paul uses this section to encourage, to strengthen, to give hope to the people that were struggling in Thessalonica, and I think it's a word for us today. So let's see if we can get some hope. Verse 8 through 12 is a discussion about the Antichrist, uh, still encouraging those Thessalonians. You are good, verse 13 and 14, very much like that Indian was reminded. And then this great phrase, good hope by grace, 15 through 17. So let's jump in and see how God might speak to us. Before we take that jump, We want to pause here to welcome those just joining us. You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Here now to take us deeper into this section of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, here's Pastor Ed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and he's still describing what hasn't happened yet, but is going to happen, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming at Jesus' second coming, the day of the Lord. So this title, Lawless One, is used to describe the last great world dictator. The dictator is not great in the sense of wonderful, but powerful. A man of sin, he's called, son of perdition, lawless one here. John the Apostle called him the anti Christ, which most of us are familiar with, so I'll use that. After the removal of the Holy Spirit, we saw last time, and the removal of the church in the rapture, then lawlessness will break out, anarchy in the land. The human name of this lawless one were never told in Scripture, but his titles, 50 of them, are in both the Old and the New Testament. But Jesus is God, and he's stronger, and he will destroy him by the breath 
of his mouth. The words of his mouth will destroy the Antichrist when Jesus comes. It's in Revelation 19, verse 15. Now, the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, tells us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians 6, 17 says that God's word is the sword of the spirit. So this is consistent with this metaphor, this picture. Four times in Revelation, Jesus is pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth, his word. Now, that's significant for you and I because God's given you his word. He wants us to own his word, to become part of us. When we memorize it, when we study it, when it becomes part of our lives, then it comes out at the right times, at opportune times for people who are struggling. That's your great privilege to speak God's word to other people. But that's how Jesus will destroy this lawless one. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the workings of Satan. It's the mechanization, it's the, uh, the power of Satan behind him. And he's going to give him, it says here, all power, signs, and lying wonders. The word power is the Greek word dudamas, dynamite power. And it is normally used in Scripture to describe physical power with a supernatural backdrop. Something behind it is supernatural, giving this antichrist power, and of course it is Satan. Signs, the word means tokens, that will make people think he is Christ, because that's what antichrist means, replacement for the Messiah, Christ, and lying wonders. The wonders that he does, he will be able to do miracles. Now, we know that Satan was uh, given power in the book of Job to send a wind that destroyed Job's family. And we see here the same idea in this Antichrist, and it will be tantalizing for the world. Well, look at this guy. Look at the things he can do. This will solve all our problems on planet Earth, in the world. So he will be able to do absolute miracles, and it will deceive many, we're told. He, Satan, has always wanted to be worshipped. He, he made himself like God, we're told. He wanted to be worshipped, and so this is his chance. The Antichrist is, in fact, his masterpiece. This guy's going to be able to do things. He's going to give up, Satan's going to give up his position as first so that people will worship this Antichrist, and vicariously, he will be worshipped in the process. This Antichrist, according to Paul's first letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, tells us that he will bring a time of peace, and everyone will go, wow, this is what the world needs, peace. Uh, but after three and a half years, something will happen. You have to piece together this whole story from the book of Daniel, 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation. So I'll just give you the, the snapshot, the quick view of it. This is Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many. He's going to bring a covenant with the world for one week. And in this prophecy in Daniel, a week is pictured as seven years. So for seven years, He'll make this covenant. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings in the temple in Jerusalem. And on the wing of abominations, that 
shall be one who makes desolate. And we looked at this last time. Jesus spoke about it in Matthew 24. This Antichrist is going to put himself in the temple and claim to be God and demand people to worship him. Even until the consummation, until Jesus comes, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So, all of this is, is picturing this last days, the day of the Lord. Paul is trying to make it clear to them it is not going on yet in their life and it isn't going on right now in this earth. Verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Those who perish, notice his influence is limited to deceiving the unsaved. Truth has escaped them. They have resisted the Holy Spirit. Don't misunderstand this verse. The Holy Spirit is in the process of trying to draw every person. God would that none would perish, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, but that all would come to repentance. So his desire is that people will come, but they have a choice in the matter. They did not receive the love of the truth, this says, because of a prior refusal to love the truth that they might be saved, they are blind. It's a self-imposed blindness. They chose a lack of commitment to the good news, the gospel. In my life, which I did it for the first 26 years, it was indifference, it was stubbornness, it was arrogance, it was prideful, it was I wanted to do my own thing, call it whatever you want, it was sin. It's not sufficient to know the truth. It says here, we have to love the truth. In other words, there are many people, it's a mystery to me why people do this, but there are many people who study scripture academically. They only do it for academic reasons. They wanna get a degree, they wanna teach it. Or vain curiosity, they're trying to disprove it. You know, I know this book is full of lies, I'm gonna prove it. But when you do not approach the scripture with humility, you'll never see the truth. You must humble yourself. That's the way God set it up. If you come humbly, he'll accept anyone. If you come with an arrogant sneer on your face, he's not so impressed with you. When you have the attitude that, you know, I don't need God, I'm fine, then God will let us do what we think we can do. These people don't love the truth, and they are thus easy prey for the devil. They might be saved as God's heart. That's what it says. Because they might be saved if they would receive the truth. They're saying, no, I refuse it. God's desire is they would. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, deception. Delusion is the right word that they should believe the lie. Delusion means a wandering, the Greek word here. They, they wander off the path of truth. They look for other things. Ah, that's too confining, that Jesus thing. I'm going to go with Maharajiji or, you know, pick your prophet kind of a thing. The religious inventions, you know, you start worshiping trees and rocks and all sorts of Mother Earth and, oops, sorry, did I say that? Delusion is stronger than deception. Deception means that a person can be fooled about something, but delusion is a way of life. It's become a pathway for that person. They think that way, they harbor it in their heart, and the danger is that it would become permanent. 
God can break through? Pray. You got somebody in your life that needs the Lord that way? Pray. But they're under a strong, that's the word here, it means supernatural working. They're under a strong, in this case, delusion, a way of life. God will send us. Why? I had a long conversation with a college kid about this. Isn't that unfair, he said. And his concept was that, you know, they really would come if they just could see it and that God's blinded them. No, no, no. We see a parallel story in the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But please, don't misunderstand that statement. It is not poor old Pharaoh that just wants to let the children of Israel go, but God blinds him so he can't see the real truth. No, no. It's the opposite. Pharaoh set his heart against God. The first statement about that whole story, go read it, is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. When Moses said, God says, let my people go, he said, no. And God used that. Used it? Yeah. Ten plagues, all against gods of Egypt. The Nile River was a god. Frogs were gods. Cattle still are gods in many parts of the earth. The Hindu were for sure. Flies, really, Lord of the Flies? That's a title you'd want. But that was part of God's plan so that the rest of the Egyptians would see it. And when the Jews came out, it was a mixed multitude. What's that mean? That means a lot of Egyptians came with them because they could see that God was God, much stronger than all the false gods of Egypt. But Pharaoh hardens his heart, so God locks it in. So then he can do what he needs to do to show the rest of the people in the country that he's God. It happens nine times after that. And that's exactly what's going on here. Don't approach Scripture with humility, then you leave yourself setting their heart. Now, the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. And that's why when the gospel is preached, even right now here this morning, in this room, out on the internet, radio, some people are softening to God, and some people are setting their heels in the ground and stiffening against God perfect example of what this verse is talking about. The sun is shining. What are you doing with it? It will happen in the last days. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20, but the rest of mankind, it reads, who were not killed by these plagues in the last days, did not repent of the works of their hands. They didn't repent. That's all it takes, repentance. God, please forgive me. I surrender. That's it. If we're faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's too easy. It's easy because you didn't do it. God did it. He did all the work. He died on the cross for you. All you have to do is accept it. That they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They enjoyed sin too much. Scripture's very honest. It says there is pleasure in sin for a season. And Moses didn't think he wanted to stay in that pleasure in sin for a season in Egypt, it says in Hebrews. There is pleasure, but it's only for a period of time. And eternity is what is in the balance, right? Thanks for being with us for Grow in Grace. We're going and growing through a study of the New Testament with Pastor Ed Ray. If you missed part of today's message or would just like to hear it again, 
go online to thepackinghouse.org or call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. We're also on YouTube at Packing House Christian Fellowship. Your support for Grow in Grace is not only needed, but greatly appreciated. And those that do this month will send you Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. Maybe prayer to you is just something you do without much thought before a meal or just another thing to cross off your to-do list. There's great power through prayer, and this book will help elevate your thinking about it. To see how it truly makes a difference, this guidebook provides believers with information about the most effective way to use prayer to better understand God's Word, fully appreciate divine power, and more deeply commune with the Lord. Again, it's our way of saying thanks for your gift of any amount to grow in grace. You can reach us at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. By the way, we're big believers in prayer here at Grow in Grace, and we want to pray for you too. Our prayer is that you'll grow in grace as you study along with us. And if you have questions related to our study or a prayer request, please send those our way. Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. That's packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us for the next Grow in Grace as our study of the New Testament continues with Pastor Ed Ray. And may God richly bless you as you grow in grace. This program is brought to you by the Packing House Christian Fellowship. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place got to dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me.